At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We eagerly wait with anticipation for the return of Jesus, when He will make everything wrong right. In a way, He's always reigned over all things, but on the other hand, His saving grace has received pushback and rejection from the evil of this world. Join us in our new series, Thy Kingdom Come, His Reign in Our Lives where we'll learn what the reign of Jesus truly means for us believers and how we, as the body of Christ, can continue spreading his name until he returns. Here this morning. If you have a Bible with you, I'm going to invite you to open it with me to Mark chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, maybe you have a phone or device with you, and you could pull that out, open your browser, search Mark 3 this morning. That's the passage we're going to be looking at uh, together, and, uh, and I think it's important for you to be able to see that text. If, if nothing else, it'll at least give you a distraction out of the sun for a second for you to look down and see it. So we, we try to organize this the best we can so it's not blinding you, but... It changes all the time. So you know what? It just is what it is, right? So, um, But anyway, we're going to be in Mark chapter 3 this morning. We're kicking off a new series that we're calling Thy Kingdom Come. And so um, I'm going to just read the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning so you can hear it. And then we'll jump in and kind of unpack some of it together. So this is Mark 3. We're going to be going uh, verses 7 uh, through 20 this morning. So this is God's word. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, oh, sorry for that one, that is sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Cananean and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Then he went home and gathered and the crowd gathered again so that he could not even eat. You know, sometimes the most counterintuitive thing is actually what we've been searching for all along. The question is whether or not we have the ability to see it. Iganas Semmelweis was a Hungarian physician in the 18th century, and uh, he was a prominent physician, and uh, he worked primarily with mothers in the process of giving birth. And one of the things Semmelweis discovered in his practice was that oftentimes during that time when women would give birth, there was a significant high percentage of them that would establish infections or would get infections after they gave birth to their children. It was really a significant issue at the time. And Semmelweis tried to figure out and deal with how he could help these moms and the 
infections they were experiencing. And so he began a practice of having his nurses and doctors that worked under him at the hospital begin to actually wash and disinfect their hands before they engaged in the process of labor. This was new at the time, but he felt like this might be the root cause of the problem that was causing these sort of infections. And lo and behold, it actually began to work, actually directly in his hospital alone. They say they saw a postpartum infection mortality drop from 18% to 2% in the time that he was overseeing what was happening. In 1861, Semmelweis published a book uh, uh, kind of proclaiming what he had found and encouraging the medical community to adopt the process of washing hands and disinfecting prior to birth and towards medical procedures. But unfortunately, Simmelweis's suggestion was completely rejected and ignored by the medical and scientific community. His idea actually challenged a lot of the preconceived notions that people had about the way disease worked at the time. Many people thought diseases were in the air that had nothing to do with physical contact at the time. Others felt like the best way to deal with disease was actually through the process of bloodletting, not necessarily through disinfecting. And so their preconceived notions kind of hindered them from being able to see the revolutionary understanding that Simon Y was actually trying to bring. Not only that, it was actually a source of pride for many doctors who were male at the time that they saw themselves as being a little bit higher in stature and standis and that there was no way that their hands would actually be dirty enough to infect or cause problems with the patient. This would ultimately, the rejection of Simonwise would cause him to have a nervous breakdown at one point and he would end up dying out of that. It would only be decades later that we would discover what we commonly know today, that infection does come from germs and from diseases and from physical contact. And I bring that story up because I've often wondered, what, what, what would have happened if people would have, it seemed maybe counterintuitive, would have been open to the idea of what he was actually trying to bring? How many mothers or kids or people would have been saved? How different would the world have been for decades if they would have been open to something that was different and counterintuitive? I think there's a parallel in some ways between Simon story and the reality of Jesus and the claims that he sought when he came to this earth and what he sought to bring. That oftentimes, sometimes it's the counterintuitive things that are actually the very answer that we're looking for. When Jesus begins his ministry, it's recorded that he begins by giving a very significant proclamation of what he came to do. You actually find it right at the very beginning of the letter that Mark writes describing Jesus' life and death. It says in Mark 1.14 that after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus came proclaiming good news. That's what the word gospel means. And what was the good news that he was bringing? Well, that the kingdom of God was actually coming by his life and by his ministry. This was a significant deal because, as we see, the kingdom of God is pictured throughout the scriptures as the answer and hope that we're all looking for. That God had designed the world actually for flourishing and for goodness and for life and peace and justice and harmony for all. But because of humanity's rebellion against the rule of God, the world had fallen into brokenness and disrepair and injustice and unrighteousness. 
God sought to once again establish his kingdom through his people, but they turned in rebellion against him. And so God had begun to promise that he would one day send a king who would come to actually bring and reestablish God's rule and reign on the earth so that human flourishing could happen once again. And when Jesus comes in and says that that's actually happening through him and through his ministry, his claim is that the thing that our hearts all long for is actually being established by his reign, by his life, and ultimately even through his death and resurrection. The kingdom of God is the world that you and I look for and long for. You might not call it that, but we all have a desire in a sense that the world isn't the way it's supposed to be and a longing for the world to be something else. We might not call it the kingdom of God, but we use terms like utopia, paradise, shalom, Jannah, moksha, nirvana, a perfect world, a golden age. Pick your religion or worldview. They all have the inherent idea that something is off and are looking that for a better and more full world where there is flourishing for all, where there is righteousness and justice for everyone. And Jesus comes on the scene and essentially proclaims that that's exactly what he's here to do, to bring the kingdom of God and the world the way we designed for it to be. But here's where I think the challenge comes, and it's what we're going to lean into today and explore over the next several weeks in this series. That the reign of Jesus and his kingdom, the answer that we are looking for, comes in counterintuitive ways. It doesn't come as we often expect it. It doesn't follow in the normal patterns of our culture and world. In fact, it often challenges those things. It calls us to question our preconceived notions about how we understand God and reality. It calls us to let go of our pride, thinking that we have all the answers, and to begin to look for what Jesus brings as the answers that we are looking for. It's why in Jesus' call, the very first words he begins with is repent and believe. That in order to receive the world that God designed for us to have, the answer that we're looking for, it takes a willingness to let go of what we think reality is and start to ask what Jesus is actually leading us into. It's to turn and to trust. And over the next several weeks, we're going to dig into these three chapters in the Gospel of Mark that I think is going to help challenge us continually to ask the question, what is Jesus' reign about? What is the kingdom that he's bringing? And how do we respond to it? And so the place that we actually want to begin that journey today is by looking at this summary statement that Mark says in chapter 3 that I think is just going to ask us two simple questions, or at least challenge us to think through two simple questions this morning. Who is Jesus, and what does it actually mean to follow him? Who is Jesus, and what does it mean to follow him? And I want to encourage you, maybe you're new to church, and this is your first day, you're checking us out, we're great. Maybe those are questions you haven't thought deeply before. Maybe you've been around church your whole life, and there's a natural tendency to think, ah, oh, yeah, I got Jesus, I know that. I know what it means to follow him. I'll encourage you to say, even in my own journey, these questions challenge me, and I think this is a good opportunity for all of us to lean in. We're never beyond learning and engaging and understanding more of who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. So Mark in chapter 3 gives us this kind of summary of Jesus' ministry here. 
In the first two chapters, he unpacks. Jesus is doing a lot of things. Mark establishes his authority. And then in verse 7, he kind of gives a summary of what is happening in light of what Jesus is doing. He notes that Jesus withdraws with his disciples to the sea and that a great crowd follows him from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. And so Mark notes that because of Jesus' work in ministry, his popularity begins to grow, not just in a local way, but actually to spread around the very region. And when the great crowd hears, it says in verse 8, all that he was doing, they came to him. And Jesus recognizes this actually creates a problem because there's so many people following after him. He recognizes they're pressing around him that he has no way of escaping and that this could get dangerous. So he actually invites his followers to say, hey, can you set up a boat? So like if I need to get out of this and this gets a little shady, like I have somewhere to go. There's something in the fervor of Jesus's ministry that's creating quite a scene. Right, and crowds, this isn't unnew to us, that crowds would discover something that they'd be excited about, that they would push beyond the bounds maybe of what's even normal or safety. I mean, I just remember reading in the news several weeks ago that Taylor Swift's concert in Seattle caused a 2.3 magnitude earthquake on the Richter sale. Like, so I can't only imagine what was happening around Jesus at the time. And why are the crowds so drawn to him? What are, what are they after? Who, what is it about him and who he is that causes this kind of reaction? Well, John, or I'm sorry, Mark notes for us after this that the reason they crushed him is because he had healed many people so that all who had diseases started to press around him and to touch him. Jesus, in announcing and bringing his kingdom to bear, recognizes that his reign and rule actually brings heaven to earth in such a way that it begins to undo the brokenness that we experience. That things like diseases, even death, and the false things that plague our world are beginning to be undone in the ministry and work of Jesus. And this draws attention and attraction. But it doesn't only create earthly shockwaves in the world physically. We note that it actually creates shockwaves even in the world spiritually. Because Mark notes that whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And here, Mark is presenting for us very clearly who he thinks Jesus is. That Jesus is, in fact, the promised saving king who is bringing the kingdom of God to bear. And that that kingdom is beginning to undo the effects of the fall and the brokenness that we experience in the world, not only physically, but spiritually. The confessions of the demon is meant to highlight who Mark is actually trying to show you Jesus is all along. From the very beginning of his gospel, he says that Jesus is the son of God. The one sent of God, fully God and fully man, to establish God's kingdom. Jesus ultimately orders the demons to be silent or to not to make him known. And I think that's important because Jesus wants you to understand who he is, not based on his popularity, but based on the revealing of who he is by his work. It's easy for us to get caught up in popular people. It's easy for popularity to distract us on the truth of who someone is. Jesus is not trying to raise his notoriety here. 
He instead presents to them the truth and reality of what he has done. Again, this is counterintuitive. In our world and culture, when somebody does something significant, we try to capitalize their notoriety. We're like, get that on social media. Put that out there. Grow your platform. Increase your following. Jesus seems to do things the opposite way. He's like, listen, demons, be quiet. I don't want you to let anybody know who I am. And in fact, all these crowds are surrounding me. In the very next verse, it notes that he actually withdraws with his disciples to go up on a mountain. The invitation of Jesus to consider who he is is not built on his popularity, but instead upon his work. And it requires an investigation, not just a fan, but the willingness to actually observe and see and consider what he's trying to do in his life and ministry. Who is he? Well, Mark very clearly presents for us who we think he is, that he is the son of God. But the question then quickly follows, if he is the son of God, then what does it look like to follow him? And that question's raised very naturally in the next verse. Look what it says in verse 13. And he, Jesus, went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. Now, if you're reading through the text, you're going to note this is actually the repeat, an exact repeat, word for word, of an earlier phrase that had just happened several verses earlier. Remember in verse 9, I'm sorry, in verse 8, when the great crowd heard all that Jesus was doing, they came to him. But not all that come to him come to him on the mountain. Mark sets up this story to help us, I think, ask the question, which way do we ultimately come to Jesus? Because there's a difference. There's a difference between those who are fans of Jesus and those who are followers of Jesus. Those are not the same thing. To respond to the revelation and truth that Jesus is the king, the son of God, who comes to establish the king of God, questions ultimately how will we respond? Do we simply come to him out of his popularity to give him the nod that say, oh yeah, Jesus, I'm cool with him? Or do we come to him in a way that actually seeks to follow, to respond? The division is set up between the two. Not everyone who is a fan is a follower. But those who are actually the followers here are the ones who begin to experience the reality of the kingdom. Mark notes that Jesus goes up on a mountain. He also notes that he appoints or calls 12 people. This is a highly symbolic act for Jesus because God's people in covenant was originally established on a mountain with 12 tribes. Jesus instead comes up on this mountain and establishes 12 apostles to show that he's reestablishing God's people and God's kingdom with him now at the center as the son of God and the king. And it's now through his new movement that the kingdom of God is going to come. And it's here then the question is, well, what does it mean then to embrace and experience that reality? To move from being a fan of Jesus to a follower of him and experience the kingdom that he's bringing. Well, I think there's three, just real quickly, three things that can help us understand what does it actually mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to be a disciple here? The first one I think we know right away in verse 13 is that the response out of who Jesus is and to follow him is to be called out from the crowd. What marks his disciples that go up on the mountain with him? Who are those that come from the crowd and move into the experience of the kingdom that he's beginning to establish? Well, it's clear. It's his call. 
verse 13 notes, he called to him those he desired, and they came to him. Jesus calls, and they respond. This is what marks the beginning of their following of them. He separates them from the crowd and ultimately calls them to be with him. It reminds us what I said earlier. Not everyone in the crowd is committed. Not every fan is a follower. And Jesus marks his followers first by those who hear his call, right, to experience the kingdom of God and what Jesus is bringing. doesn't start with our commitment. It doesn't start with our work. It starts with his call. We see this earlier in the gospel when Jesus first called his disciples. It didn't start with them. They weren't the best of the best. They were average fishermen, day traders, regular blue-collar guys. Many of them likely would have been already rejected by the religious establishment. But Jesus comes to them and says, follow me. The call of discipleship always begins with Jesus' call. And that's good news because the call of discipleship is for everyone. It's not a call just relegated to some, the spiritually elite. It's those that Jesus invites and who will then actually respond. And the good news for you today is Jesus is inviting you to that journey. He's continually inviting us to that journey. And it doesn't start with where you're at. It doesn't start whether you think you have things together or don't have things together. Whether you've been faithful in your journey or unfaithful. The call of discipleship always begins with the invitation of Jesus to come and follow him. And that's for every single one of us today. But then, it's responded to by those that will follow him. Discipleship begins with Christ's call, but it does require our response. It does require our willingness to come after him, to be with him, and to learn from him. What distinguishes the followers from the fan is their willingness to join Jesus on the mountain. The crowds were content They were content with what they could get from Jesus. Sure, I'll take a little healing. I'll move on my way. And oftentimes in our own spiritual journey, if we're not careful, this is how we can think of Jesus as well. Yeah, I'll pop in for a spiritual experience. I'll get something good. I'll take a moment. And then I'll just kind of go back to doing life however I want, never actually willing to dig deeper or to follow further in where he might actually be leading us. But those that are distinguished from the crowd that experience the kingdom of God are those who are willing to make the commitment to follow. It's a willingness to follow Jesus out of the crowd that marks the disciple, to hear that call and follow him. I remember uh, last year my son was in the process of trying out for his eighth grade basketball team, uh, which is always a little nerve-wracking as a parent, right? You're trying to prep him and get ready for him and help him understand what it looks like as he goes into tryouts and one of the very clear things that uh that both my wife and I were trying to encourage him was to say hey here's what will help you in joining the team listen to what the coach says that's like step one right because if you coach sports you know the kids that show up that think they have it all together they've got it figured out I'm going to show you I'm going to do what I want as a coach and I've coached basketball before those are the very first kids you're like "Uh, I don't know about you because you don't have what I need. And you're more interested in yourself than you are actually what I want to do in and through you for the sake of the team and what we could ultimately become. And so we were trying to help my son understand, listen, when you go to try out what the coach says, do, and do it the best you can. 
It's the same thing in joining the team of Jesus. The good news is it's an invitation for everyone, right? There's no winners or losers here. There's no one who's more athletic than the other. Jesus isn't looking at you going like, I don't know if your spiritual aptitude is high enough. But what his invitation is to say, will you just come and listen to me? That's all it requires. That's all that it takes is a step and a willingness to step out of the crowd, to set yourself apart, and to actually listen to the invitation that I give. And so ultimately, the journey of discipleship begins with simply being willing to leave what we know in order to follow and be and come with Jesus. What crowd is Jesus calling you out of this morning? What crowd have you been trapped in in our world and society that maybe has been hindering you beginning to experience the kingdom of God in your life? Because I think there's a lot of crowds that we get caught up in. The pressure of friends or popularity of work, the crowd of pursuit of the American dream that often hinders our willingness to actually step out and follow where Jesus might be leading us. But the journey of discipleship is a willingness to hear and to respond. And as you do that, you begin to move towards the vision that Jesus has for you and the flourishing that he wants to bring to your life. A little bit later on this morning, we're going to have the opportunity to witness baptism. And baptism is one of those great moments where people say, hey, I'm willing to be marked by Jesus. It's not the easiest thing in the world to get in a tub of water through for, in front of a whole bunch of people. But it's a way in which we publicly declare, I'm stepping out of the crowd and I'm willing to have my life marked by the truth of Jesus. That's why we go into the water symbolizing his death. We come out symbolizing the new life of his resurrection. To mark our physical bodies with how we mark our spiritual reality in following Jesus. We step out of the crowd and we make the commitment. That's where the journey begins. The second mark then that we see in the process of those who follow Jesus is not only are they called out of the crowd, but they spend time with him. Note what he says in verse 13. He appoints these unique 12. It's a symbolic number, but I think it's meant to overflow in many ways to all those that he will call in discipleship. And it says that he calls them to two very specific things. The first thing is, he said he appointed 12, whom he also named apostle, catch, so that they might be with him. You see, the journey of discipleship and what it means to actually be a follower of Jesus is that we're with Jesus. That we seek to be with him, to cultivate our lives, to know him, to engage a relationship with him. Followers of Jesus are different. The crowd was content with one experience. Followers of Jesus are not content with an experience, but an ongoing relationship. They want to know him. They want to be with him. They want to learn his ways. They want to understand what he actually brings to help them in the reality of their life and experience the kingdom of God. The beginning of discipleship, it doesn't start with a do, it starts with a be. It starts with simply being with Jesus. I think sometimes it's easy for us to get caught up in thinking that what it means to follow Jesus or be part of the kingdom of God is just a bunch of do's and don'ts. It's just a rule of what you should do and what you shouldn't do. But that's not the truth of what it actually means to follow Jesus. The starting point for all of what it means to be a Christian is ultimately to trust in Jesus and then to be with him. 
that we're ultimately created to be before we ever do. And it's in the being that we actually experience the biggest reality of our transformation. To become the person God created you to be, to learn the way of Jesus, to experience him, it doesn't start with all the things you have to do. It starts with your willingness to just be with him. Because as you're with him, what you'll begin to experience is his love for you. And it's his love for you that actually begins the process of transformation in your own heart, in your own reality. All of us are longing in the brokenness of who we are, in the fallenness of our world, in the brokenness of our humanity to experience a deep, transformative love of someone who's willing to walk with us and help us navigate the challenges of life. The good news of the gospel and the call of discipleship is Jesus has made just those promises to you. This is why even when he would leave his disciples, he would say, I'm not leaving you as orphans, I'm coming to you. I'm going to be with you. And you're going to be with me so that you might continually experience my reality and my love and be transformed by it. The good news of grace and the good news of the gospel is that in Jesus, we constantly have the invitation of someone that we can be with and who actually wants to be with us. And this is why in our own journeys, one of the questions that we must ask or one of the things we must walk in is really this idea of spending time with him. Jesus highlights this point in one of the, another story and encounter that he had with two sisters in Luke chapter 10. In Luke 10, 38, Jesus enters the house of a woman named Martha and her sister Mary. And as Jesus comes in, Martha becomes extremely busy with trying to serve Jesus and the guests that have now entered her house. It notes in verse 40, just that very reality, it says, but Martha, I'm sorry, in verse 39, it notes Mary's different. It says that Martha had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. And listen how Jesus responds to her. Right? Here's the question. God, don't you get it? We have so much to do here. Like, I need some help. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. What was that good portion? Well, it said it earlier. She simply sat at his feet and listened to his teaching. Many of us struggle and feel the anxiousness and trouble of many things in life. And oftentimes when that comes, it can, can, can neglect or cause us to forget the most important thing that can be in the path of discipleship, which is simply being with Jesus. That's the better portion. That's where the focus and emphasis comes. If you struggle with always feeling the pressure of religion to do more, to accomplish and get further. Let me remind you that the invitation from here for Jesus to his disciples was first simply to be with him. When you begin to infuse this in your spiritual life, it begins to change the very way you navigate even the things that you seek to do in engaging God. I remember experiencing this several years ago in my own journey 
in the time that I spend every morning with the Lord. So for many years now, when I wake up in the morning, the very first thing I do is I get a cup of coffee and I sit with my Bible. And probably if you know me enough at this point, if you don't know me, you'll find out pretty soon that I'm a big nerd and I'm specifically a Bible nerd. So when it comes to reading in the morning, it's really hard. Most of the time I would just have like my checklist, get through it. I want to study, pull out the languages, begin to dig in. And at some point I realized though that like, I was doing all these things, but I had neglected the very essence of discipleship from the get-go, that my doing was actually overriding my being, that I wasn't reading the Bible to just be with Jesus. I was reading the Bible so I could get more information, so I could teach more, so I could understand more, because I have this insatiable appetite to just understand, 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 but their relationship had gone away. God convicted me of that, and I began a little while back to just try to focus my mornings on just reading in a way that engages relationship. And as I did that, it began to change how I experienced God, how I began to experience his word. And even then, it began to inform the way I would study, the way I do learn, and how I move forward beyond that. If you've been caught up in the doing of Christianity and you've neglected the being Be reminded this morning that the invitation from Jesus is first to be with him. Maybe it's okay to step back from all the doing to just focus on the being so you can experience his love and begin to then follow him in a way that he designed and called you to. Finally, the last thing this morning we're reminded is not only do followers of Jesus, are they called out from the crowd and spend time with Jesus, but Jesus then gives them authority to minister. Look what he says in the next phrase. He called them and appointed 12 so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So what we recognize is that, yes, in the process of discipleship, being is before doing, but that doesn't entirely negate the, be, the doing. It just puts it in the right place in order. And in your own journey, I would encourage you in that way. Make sure that stays in the right order. Being leads to doing but you can't use being as an excuse to never engage doing, right? So you can step back into being, but being should inform the doing of what it means to actually follow and live the life that Jesus desires for us as part of his kingdom. And so what we see here is that being with Jesus then becomes the means by which his followers are sent by him to do two very clear things in the text. One, to proclaim or preach. That's the idea of preaching. It's to proclaim the good news. Now, oftentimes when we think preach, we think that's what's taking place on a Sunday morning. And so we think like, well, that's not what Jesus' call is for me necessarily. But I think that's the wrong context. Yes, there is an aspect of preaching that's happening right now, but that idea behind that is simply to proclaim the good news of Jesus. That he is the king, that he has died for our sins, and that he has risen from from the grave and is the true Lord of the earth. And what we see in the early followers is that wasn't just done on Sunday morning in churches, but actually these first followers took this good news everywhere they went. In houses and homes, with coworkers and neighbors, they simply sought to live out the way of Jesus and by their lives, and then when opportunity came, proclaim the truth and reality of his gospel. To, pro- to preach is simply to make much of Jesus. To be on mission in a way that declares the truth of his gospel. And that happens in houses, in public spaces, in conversations. 
And that happens and it was meant to happen from all of us. But not only are we given that call, we're also given that authority. He notes that they were given authority to cast out demons. Now before you get a little wigged out on that, and this is a longer explanation that I have for this morning, I think that the broader picture of exorcisms that we see throughout the Gospel of Mark is that there genuinely are demonic forces, but it's meant to picture the reality that this is the kingdom of God confronting the kingdom of darkness. This is the truth that the kingdom that Jesus is bringing is meant ultimately to confront the evil forces that continue to plague our world. Yes, individuals, but also the reality of the systems around us. And that ultimately the followers of Jesus are given the authority to encounter and confront that reality to bring the kingdom of light and the kingdom of God to bear on the world. That you actually have that ability to do that in your life. That you don't have to be or succumb to the powers of this world, to the powers of injustice and unrighteousness, to cultural powers that actually lead us away from the flourishing that God intended for us. And so what we see, even in what Jesus gives to his early followers, is that they're called to be with him and that that being leads them to be on mission with him, bringing the hope and truth of his kingdom to bear on the world around them. And so the kingdom of God, it's not only something that's received, but it's extended. And it's extended through you and me. You've been given that ministry and that authority as a follower of Jesus. And my question is, do you, for those of you that have not made that commitment, have you recognized that authority that you've been given? Sometimes it's easy for us to think that the ministry of the church is ultimately left up to the professionals. That it's just the, the pastors or the people who get paid or maybe the leaders in the church. But no, that's an that's a invitation for all of us. That's something we're all called to do. I mean, that's why one of the things we focus on in life groups, and you heard Carol say earlier, is our mission. Because we want to be a place that empowers all of God's people to know what it means to be with Jesus, but then also to go out and minister and extend the truth of who he is into all the nooks and crannies of our culture and neighborhood and places around us. We're given that authority. And it's an incredible privilege. And so we see here the, what the invitation is that Jesus gives us to. That we're invited to move from the place of being fans to followers. We're invited to experience the kingdom of God by getting in the game. Both my boys play high school football right now for Farmington. Go Falcons. Sorry, North, we love you too. Don't worry, right? We're all one big happy family. And I love watching them play football. And I love when they win because as somebody who supports the Falcons, it's a joy to watch our teams win and to cheer for them and to be in the stands. But I can tell you right now that I do not experience the same joy, the same reality of what it looks like to be part of the team and to win a game as those that are on the field. Those that are making the day in, day out commitment and work that are participating, that are engaged that are giving the sacrifices, taking the steps to grow in what it means to be a player on the team. Yeah, I'm a fan. I love the Falcons. I celebrate with them. But there's a different celebration between what happens 
in the stands and what happens on the bus ride home. And there's a different camaraderie and community that is birthed about that reality. See, it's oftentimes counterintuitive. We think we can experience the kingdom of God by just simply staying on the sidelines and nodding at Jesus as a fan. But it's only when we're willing to get in the game, to be on the team, to make the commitment that we get to get experience the joy and the transformation and the life and the goodness that Jesus has for us. And that's really the invitation. Even as we step into this series, even as we step into this fall, my invitation for you this morning is to take that step of commitment. I know your heart longs for it. I know your desire of your heart is to experience the world as it should be, to experience your life as you were designed for. And the truth of the kingdom of God is God gives you an invitation this morning to all of us. Not one of us is precluded. Not one of us is excluded. Not one of us is there some sort of requirement we have to meet. All it is is a willingness to join the team and to be committed to following after him. And so what does it look like for you to make a commitment this morning? I think that's a question, honestly, I think that's a question for all of us. It's a question I was wrestling with this morning. I try early on Sunday mornings, I started this recently, to just sit down with the text we're going to read and try to just think it through for my own soul before I ever bring it to you. Because if this word isn't transforming me, I don't want to just be up here saying something that I'm not trying to experience myself. And God was challenging me this morning in my journal. What's your commitment? What are the things I'm asking you to step forward into? And I think that's a question that we can all, we're all should wrestle with as we step into this season together as a church. The kingdom is a willingness and commitment to pursue the king. Maybe for some of you, that's just a commitment to actually explore the claims of Jesus. Maybe you've never put your faith in him. You've just kind of given a nod to him. Maybe you've grown up around church or you're kind of curious. Maybe the commitment for you this morning is like, I'm actually just going to dig in to what the Bible says. And I'm going to try to understand this Jesus the best I can. So that I'm not just working off secondhand knowledge or something I remember from whatever culture says. But I'm genuinely wrestling with what he has to say and the claims of Christianity. Maybe for some of you this morning, the commitment that God might be calling you to is to put your faith in Jesus. Maybe you've done that exploring. Maybe you feel that call, but you know that you've never taken that step of actually putting your trust in him, trusting that he is the king, that he died for your sins, that he genuinely is risen from the dead. Maybe for some of us this morning, the commitment is we have put our faith in Jesus, but we've never made that public statement before others to say, I'm on that team. I'm marked by his reign. If that's you this morning, we want to give you the opportunity to take a step in getting baptized. To actually publicly declare and show your faith in Jesus. And to actually be willing to say, hey, we're going to have some people who have already made that commitment and willingness this morning. But maybe you haven't done that. And God might be leading you this morning to say, you know what? I've trusted Jesus, but I've never made that publicly known. I've never followed his call in obedience. We would invite you to do that. We got shirts and towels and shorts. So don't worry. We've got stuff for you this morning. And if God's tugging on your heart, we would invite you to do that. Pastor Joe, after, this, after I'm done praying for us, he's going to be right back behind the curtain here. He'd love to just have a conversation with you about that, to take that step, either of those steps, to put your faith in Jesus for the first time or to make that step of baptism. 
Maybe for some of us, God might be calling us in commitment to actually be with him more. To recognize we've gotten so caught up in doing that we've neglected rhythms in our life of just being with Jesus. That we've hit a plateau and we've made Christianity more about our actions than the relationship with our king. Maybe for others, God might be leading you to get in the game, to join a life group, to serve in some capacity, to extend the kingdom, to step out in faith. I don't know. Those are options. I don't know where everyone is at. But all I know is I genuinely believe that the invitation of the gospel is an invitation to commitment this morning. And I think that's true for every single one of us. I would hate for you to walk out of here or to leave this without it somewhere in your heart settling the commitment that God might be calling you to this morning and taking one step. It doesn't have to be a massive step. It doesn't have to be one step forward out of the crowd, out of the mundane, and into what it means to follow him. So I'm going to pray for us, and the band's going to come up and lead us. And as they do, I'm just, we're, we're going to sing a song. And I just want to use that as a time to proclaim who Jesus is. But to give you an opportunity as they sing and you sing with them. But to wrestle through that. And to take that step. Settle it in your heart. Like I said, Pastor Joel will be back here. If you want to get baptized, if you want to put your faith in Jesus, he'd love to have a conversation. Maybe there's other things that God's leading you towards. But let me just pray for us now. And then we're just going to step in and let God do his work by his spirit. So Father God, thank you this morning for your love for us. Thank you for... Your, your constant invitation that you are um, such a God of grace such a God of, of mercy that no matter where we're at this morning we're never too far from your invitation and call to step towards you so I pray that this morning God you would help us first and foremost to just sense the truth not only of who Jesus is as king but also his deep love for us and his willingness to die on our behalf I pray oh God that you would do a work and help us by your power to respond to what you're calling us to this morning I don't I don't know what that is God you do you know what you're placing on the hearts of people now you know what you're inviting and calling people to I just want to ask is that you would give us the strength to follow in obedience and that you would help us to take whatever step you might be leading us towards now. So empower us by your spirit. Do your work now, we ask in Jesus' mighty and precious name. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.